forever. Dog. Still don't know what I was waiting for, and my time was running wild. A million dead in streets, and every time I thought I'd got it made, it seemed the taste was not so sweet. So I turned myself to face me. Oh, but I never caught a glimpse of how the others must see the faker. I'm much too fast to take that test. Change it. Hi, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of this show, The Writers Panel. We've got some really cool stuff for you today, starting with a catch-up with our old friends from Colony, the USA show. Uh, creator, co-creator Ryan Condal and co-showrunner Wes Took. It's a short conversation just about the third upcoming season of Colony, which starts tomorrow, May 2nd. Following that, we've got a really terrific panel that I recorded at the LA Times Festival of Books just a couple weeks ago um, with our old friend Eileen Brosh McKenna, who's the co-creator of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Sam Bain, who I wanted to have on the panel for a long time, Uh, He's the co-creator with Jesse Armstrong of Peep Show, Fresh Meat, a bunch of others, and the sole creator of a show called Ill Behavior, which is on Showtime, which you guys should check out. All six episodes are out, and it is six and done. Uh, And it's also got Tanya Saracho, who is a playwright. She's done a bit of television, um, but she's the creator of Vita, a stars show that is coming out soon. Um, We had a really great conversation. It was a lot of fun. They were a terrific mix of guests, which is what I always try to do on these panels. Um, We also had great audience questions at the LA Times Festival of Books, and it made me remember that sometimes doing the live shows is really fun, even though they're really hard to book, um, and it's hard to worry about selling tickets and that sort of thing. But maybe I'll be doing more of those in the future. I can't promise anything. What I can promise is, hopefully, this is the last time you're going to get sort of a shitty home recording of my voice doing these intros. Uh, You may have noticed that some changes are taking place here at the writer's panel. Um, They're not major changes, you know, we're going to get a little bit of a a polish, um, but you may have seen, if you go on iTunes, and I'm sure this shows up in any of the podcasting apps as well, that uh, the Writers Panel is no longer a Nerdist podcast. It's being carried by the brand new ATX Network. Uh, That's the ATX Television Festival, which you know I've been involved with since its very beginning, Uh, as well as Forever Dog Podcasting Network. Forever Dog does a lot of great shows, including my friend Rhea Butcher's baseball show, which I really love. Um, They do uh, a show called Teen Creeps, which is about um, teenage sort of horror literature. It's really fun. Um, But they have a lot of great shows, and uh, they're a a cool network who is doing a lot of great things. So between ATX and Forever Dog, we're getting a little bit of an upgrade. Um, This was nothing against Nerdist. Uh, I've been sort of looking to stretch out and try out some new places for a while now. Nerdist was a fantastic home for the writer's panel for, God, six years, for almost 400 episodes, right? Um, so I really, I have to thank Chris Hardwick, who invited me to be part of the network before there was even a network. Uh, he was just starting it up when we started talking about this. 
Uh, and Katie Levine, who was, you know, our engineer and our producer for a long time, and then Aristotle Acevedo, who was <laughs> was my rock in the studio. Uh, he was always uh, so happy to sit and talk comics and horror films and stuff with me, um, and I really appreciated it. So I don't know if he will ever hear this, but thanks, Aristotle. You're terrific. Um, but onward and upward, um, things with ATX and Forever Dog are going to be great. I will be at the ATX Television Festival this year, which starts on June 8th in Austin. Go to atxfestival.com for all the details. And I'm hoping to do some more things with Forever Dog this year. Plus, maybe you can hear some dogs in the background. One is snoring and one is walking around. So, look, any network that is pro-dog, I'm going to get involved with. I suggested uh, when I started doing these sort of longer Mark Maron rambling intros uh, earlier this year that I had some stuff to share with you. And I do, but I still can't share it. I thought it would be time by now, but there are a few projects which I'm very excited to talk about once I can talk about them. Um, In the meantime, there are a couple things I can talk about, one of which is the Thrilling Adventure Hour. Uh, As many of you know, this is a show that my writing partner and I wrote, a stage show and a podcast. We wrote it for over 10 years. Uh, It was a podcast on the Nerdist Network, and um, we did a series of comic books for Image last year, but now we've taken thrilling the IP over to Boom Studios, where we had a great experience um, with our our miniseries Death Be Damned last year, which is a supernatural western. It's collected. You can get it on Amazon. You should check it out. It's a story I really wanted to tell. Uh, But anyway, we're bringing the thrilling stuff over to Boom Studios. Uh, They're going to collect that Image series, that uh, first four issues of Sparks Nevada and Beyond Belief, The first of those is coming out in time for San Diego Comic-Con in July. We'll also be launching a brand new Thrilling Adventure Hour series, so you'll be getting new thrilling stories um, in comic book form. On that first arc, which is Beyond Belief, our artist is MJ Erickson, who is incredible. Her art, we've been seeing it come in, and it captures the feel of the stage show and the podcast without being sort of slavish to all of the stuff that that entails, you'll know when you see it. I can't wait for you to see it. So that all comes out in July. Speaking of doing things that I want to do, and I think that, you know, writers ought to do, um, friend of the podcast, Josh Friedman tweeted just this morning about writers making the often difficult and sort of nuanced decision to write things that you want to write, write things that you love to write, pitch projects that you believe in. Uh, And it's something we talk about a lot on the podcast, especially as pertains to new writers, when you're talking about sort of writing that first pilot spec. And the advice is always write the thing that you can, only you can write, write the thing that you're most passionate about. And that is absolutely true for new writers. But it's also true for writers who maybe are getting some work. And that's a more difficult thing. And it's a thing that that certainly my writing partner, Ben Acker, and I have, have grappled with the past couple of years, where opportunities come up and whether it's staffing or whether it's, you know, what kind of pilot do you want to write or what do you want to take out and pitch. Um, and, and I think we never quite stop guessing what the marketplace wants. And that's not quite the same as chasing the market, which is advice that is always 
you know, we always get, everyone gets warned against. But given two projects, you know, the question is always, well, which one could we actually sell? Which one might other people be interested in? And you hear, especially from your reps, or, you know, you can hear from your reps, your agents and managers, well, do the one that's more marketable, right? The down the middle thing. And the down the middle thing may not always be the most down the middle thing, but there's something in it that they're responding to that they think others want. Um, Acker and I sort of reckoned with that in the past year or two and realized that our time was better spent chasing projects that we believe in, that we would want to watch. You know, there's no point in trying to create something that you would never want to watch, that you would never want to read, whatever it is, whether it's in TV, comics, movies, novels, whatever. Um, And so this past year or so, we've really refocused things and tried to pitch the shows that mean something to us, pitch the shows that we want to see, pitch the shows that don't really exist in the world, and we often ask, why doesn't it? Um, Pitch sort of the, the crazier idea or the more interesting idea or the deeper idea or, you know, not being afraid of not getting the laugh every time, um, having a more nuanced tone, more difficult characters. You know, TV is finally ready for that. And I think we, as writers, and I mean me and Acker, but I also mean all of us, should rise to that occasion. Um, I've been watching a lot of great TV recently, um, Patriot on Amazon is one that I love. Uh, Handmaid's Tale is a show that I love. Legion is a show that I love. And none of these shows make the easy decisions. None of these shows give you a simple black and white comfort food. Um, and so when Josh mentioned this idea of writing the thing that is important to you, writing the thing that you love, it really put things into stark relief for me. Um, and so The things that I'm going to tell you about when I'm allowed to tell you about them are projects that maybe don't seem obvious for the stuff that Ben and I have done, or maybe they do, I don't know. Um, But certainly they're they're projects that we believe in, uh, in a way that we haven't believed in or been excited about or been passionate about uh, stuff 10 years ago that maybe we sold or that we went to work on. Um, So anyway, all of this is a long way to say Writers, write the thing you care about. It's not always easy. Take the meeting with the show that you love or that you're interested in. And if there's a show that wants to meet you that you don't love or are not interested in, well, go meet them too. And maybe the people who work there are great. And sometimes that's a great reason to take a job. And sometimes you need insurance and that's a great reason to take a job. But you can do that for a long time. And... Maybe, you know, maybe you're not going to be satisfied creatively. Maybe you're not going to be satisfied in the rest of your life. And I will say, shifting this perspective and looking to do stuff that excites me. There's one of those dogs. Looking to do stuff that I'm passionate about has made me happier in general. Um, I also don't usually recommend other people's podcasts on here, but you should check out Happier in Hollywood. Happier in Hollywood is a uh, Panoply podcast. 
and it's hosted by Liz Craft and Sarah Fain, friends of mine, friends of the show. And uh, Liz and Sarah obviously have worked in this business for almost 20 years. Uh, they've worked on everything from The Shield to this new pilot they have now. Um, and they every week they sort of give a bird's eye view, but a very specific view of you know, ways you can navigate this business. It's not just about writing, and it certainly applies to anyone who works for a living, which I guess is just about everyone, except Bruce Wayne. And um, they have great perspective on, you know, making a career and personal struggles and, you know, ways to stay sane. And I think it's, uh, they've been doing just a great job. There are 50 episodes existing right now. Check out Happier in Hollywood. Also, check out those TV shows that I recommended. Patriot, uh, Legion, uh, Handmaid's Tale. These are inspiring to me in a way that, you know, TV ought to be and in, to which I aspire to be. Okay, that's it. Uh, let's talk to Ryan Condal and Wes Took from Colony. And then we're going to uh, get the LA Times Festival of Books panel. I hope you enjoy it. And by the way, if you enjoy this, especially now that we are on the ATX and Forever Dog networks, uh, please leave a review on iTunes. It's really helpful to me. It's helpful to get advertisers, which is part of the reason I did make that move. Um, so leave a review on iTunes. And um, if you have people you want to see on this podcast, if you have questions you want asked that you think aren't getting asked on the podcast, Please follow me on Twitter and contact me on Twitter at Ben Blacker uh, or send me an email. The email is still nerdistwriters at gmail.com and that's not going to change. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker and it's starting now. Oh yeah! Guys, we're doing it. Uh, thanks for having me in your lovely post-production offices uh, here at Colony. <laughs> the sound should be incredible. So <laughs> <laughs> we are—we're back with our old Colony pals. I'm going to have you guys introduce yourselves so that the listener knows what your voices sound like. So uh, my name is Wes Tuke. Um, Ryan Condal. Um, and we're talking about season three. Three. <laughs> okay. Yeah. At least, right? It feels, yeah. like, <laughs> it feels kind of like four. It feels like Colony's <laughs> always been with us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, season three premieres when? Tell the people. Uh, May 2nd, uh, 10 p.m. Uh, which is Wednesday this year. We were on previously on Thursdays. We are now Wednesday nights at 10 p.m. on USA. We no longer follow wrestling. That's, that's <laughs> is a sad. Is that good or bad? Uh, bad if you're a USA show. Yeah. Yeah. yeah people love the wrestling. Um, but people love Colony also. Like yes. we we were at San Diego last year, and those people went crazy for you all. I think they were going crazy really for cool you, weren't see. they, Ben? <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> no, it was really great to see that. Like, and we were talking about this a little before we started rolling. That people are embracing a show that is not based on existing IP. It's an original idea. Yeah. It actually has ideas behind it. You know, like you're you even from the get go, you guys start set out to make a show about something. It's been called accidentally the most relevant show on television. So, you know, we stumbled yeah. into something, apparently. We're, we're quite proud of that. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that for a second. Because, like, uh, coming into season three, when did you guys start the writer's room on this season? Uh, the room started in May, actually. So it'll be like a year to the day, actually, okay. from room room to premiere. 
Um, and that's about the cycle of our season. You know, 13 episodes takes a long time. It's about, you know, for us, really, for Wes and I, it's 13 months because mm-hmm. the work begins about a month, you know, a month ahead then, and uh, kind of continues on a month after the premiere because we'll still be working on the finale as, yeah. as, the, as, the, as, the, as the early episodes air. That would be 14 months, right? So, well, it's I, I, can, I consider it a 13 because we can do other things. And, and there's, there's two. In those early, and there's really, there's, there's, so there's, there's seven months, there's, really. there's two of us. Exactly. Yeah. Wes is really one and a half men. But, but, <laughs> but coming in in May, I mean, you have to have looked around at the world and what's going on. And at a certain point, it's not accidentally the most relevant show. I mean, it has, there has to be some purpose behind it. What were the conversations that were going on coming into this season based on things you had set up at the end of season two and sort of looking forward to where you were going and saying, like, how can we continue to be relevant or how can we be even more relevant now that things feel immediate? And that's where science fiction is so helpful is that you can use it as a prism and you don't, you, you don't have to be on the nose. And I think if you're trying to predict where the world is going to be a year in advance of when you're breaking a story, you're going to end up being caught flat-footed. So it's more finding the themes of the moment that feel... You know, something you want to say something about it because that's going ultimately that's what sustains you during the long process of making a show. If you don't care about it, it's really hard. It's an intellectual exercise. But if you can find the one thing that feels like it's thematically relevant, then you know, in the dark days of mid-production, suddenly you have something to get out of bed for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we've you know, I mean, the show was conceived um, during happier, yeah, uh, happier, more more settled times. But these themes are kind of universally relevant. And even if they're not relevant here in the U.S., they're relevant somewhere. And you know, the original inspiration for the show when Carlton and I came up with it was Nazi-occupied Paris because it's just, you know, it's a kind of sexy, romantic, old, you know, old story. Everybody loves Casablanca. Yeah. And we said, well, what if we did that in modern day and the Nazis were aliens and we did it here in Los Angeles? That was always the, con- the concept behind the show. But, you know, occupation, colonialization have always been concepts. And they ebb and flow and become... Mm-hmm more real and present in, in certain times and, and, you know, kind of more in the in the rearview mirror in other times. And that was always the, the aim of the show. We've never sat down and said, how can we write towards, you know, how, how can we write towards the moment? Because, as we said, we sat down in May of, of 2017, even with what was going on, on there. I mean, look at how much has happened um, yeah. since then, just even just this week. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's, imp- it's impossible to do that. But... Uh, the idea of, of uh, a refugee crisis was very mm-hmm. was very present at the time, and that felt like a universal theme that would you know, that would resonate both this year when the air, the show airs, and then for years to come when people find the show on Netflix mm-hmm. and wherever else. Um, those were the things that we were interested in doing: is exploring all these different human conditions that could come out of an extreme situation like this, but still doing it in a way where it doesn't feel like you're forcing people to eat their vegetables. Where they're coming for, you know, entertainment and getting a little nutritional value out of it at the <laughs> right. same time. Right. You, you don't exactly have to be, engage in prophecy to understand that, you know, the way that we use technology has risks. So just, you know, now suddenly because of the Facebook scandal, some of the things mm. we were doing with information technology feel more relevant than they might have. But those themes were certainly prevalent, you know, two years ago and they'll be prevalent five years from now. Just the, the specifics of the moment make them feel more relevant. That ha- that happens to be a particularly, that will feel like That's we really were, it. you know, um, <laughs> that we were time traveler, you know, right. uh, people that look into the future just because we've always had, you know, and this, you can go back to season one, there was this idea of this algorithm mm-hmm. that existed that was used to uh, sort and collate the human mm-hmm. population into people who would lead and follow and resist and so they, they could understand you know which people we should work with which people should we be aware of which people should we just pack off to the labor camps and never see again 
Um, and now that feels with Cambridge Analytica kind of feels like, wow, we were kind of, you know, <laughs> instead of what if instead of Russians, they were aliens. Um, so that will feel, I think, as we that that comes in kind of midway through through the season in a big way. And I think that'll feel really impactful when when people get there. That's interesting. I mean, it is assuming there's still an Internet at that point <laughs> right. access the show. Like you say, sci-fi has always sort of done this. I think something we haven't talked about and I just like this is a little bit off topic, but. What are your sci-fi interests? What is the, what is the genre stuff that you guys love that sort of helps fuel this show through you? This is a question that Ryan is much more equipped to handle. <laughs> I've uh, I've gotten I've gotten dirty looks from Wes at Comic Cons before saying that Wes actively hates science fiction. I don't think he actively. I think he's. I think he's he's really warm to it. Uh, I want to well, I want to talk about this. The course I'm not of a science I just don't want to be burned at the stake. Let's just start with that. <laughs> <laughs> Comic Con's really not the place. No, to, uh... but look how good at it you are. <laughs> That's the point. But there's I'm, I absolutely understand this because I don't tend to gravitate towards science fiction stuff either because it can feel cold. You know the genre trappings are just feel like trappings, right? You need a story, which is something Colony does, which is something sort of the best. Any genre does. Um, so, talk, uh, Ryan, talk about the stuff that you love. Yeah. But Wes, I want to hear about like what has penetrated. What is the stuff that you have responded to over the past couple of years, even? Um, well, I mean, you know, I, I kind of love it all. I mean, I, you know, as did every kid in the '80s, grew up on Star Wars, and that was the the entry entry point. Um, love James Cameron, particularly, uh, you know, Terminator. The Terminator series, Aliens. I just lo- I love the way that he was able to deliver pop entertainment, but mm-hmm. in a way that felt like, oh, you know, if we can accept the fact that right. there, are, there are killer robots in the future and time travel exists, then this all feels very real. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Blade Runner, you know, probably at this point, you know, my, f- my favorite movie. Um, the idea of, uh, you know, future dystopias, which I, I would say... Colony showed restraint and did not introduce the uh, the ever present penetrating rain until season three <laughs> when they moved our show to Vancouver. So I will I will say just respect us for our restraint. So many other shows get right into the rain dystopia right away. We had sunshine and palm trees. Absolutely. For no, the two rain years. is the rain is a production reality, not a conscious choice. Correct. <laughs> <Right. laughs> we could not afford fake rain. No. Yeah. No. That was something I really loved about the first couple seasons, though. Is the dystopia didn't feel like yeah. one we had seen before because yeah. you were shooting in L.A. because you weren't, you know, it was a TV budget. You worked with what L.A. had to offer yeah. and, and made it different and gave it something unique. And it was beautiful, yeah. Yeah. The, really the disconnect that on screen between seeing something that looks idyllic and, you know, repression yeah. was very jarring, I think, at first. And, yeah. you know, especially when you come into that pilot and you're playing a radio in the background and it feels like you are just in suburban L.A. And Absolutely. then that's what the ter- where the turn comes in. But you do that for two years and people start to get used to it and you, lo- you kind of lose the effect mm-hmm. of it. So moving to Vancouver was a rainy the light. <laughs> well, I'm yeah. sure it, you know, opened up new avenues as well as giving new challenges. Do you guys want to talk about both of those things? Do you want to go back to the science fiction quickly? I, so. I was going to let you off the hook. But. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I, I work in the show because it's a relationship drama that has mm-hmm. science f- fiction trap. I mean, there are many science fiction stories I love. I was The Battlestar reboot that Ron Moore did is unbelievable because it's essentially, it's a great action adventure story that also has this metaphor and theme that were incredibly topical during Bush two. Mm-hmm. So, you know, science fiction is an, is an amazing opportunity to explore without having to lecture people, you know, mm-hmm. things that are relevant to the current moment, which we said at the top of the conversation. Anyway, I'd like to say that I'm not unilaterally <laughs> opposed to science fiction. 
<laughs> in year yeah. three of a science fiction show. And I think, you know, the important thing, especially for writers who are starting out who may be listening to this, is like a thing that you guys do really well. I think that exists in all the science fiction that you respond to and that you do as, you do as well, Wes, is the characters come first. It's about the relationships first. Uh, and then all this other stuff is sort of not the backdrop, but it's the world in which that those characters exist. It's and it's the pressure that's applied to them. So yeah. you're seeing you're seeing very real human situations that are that are created by these extraordinary events or circumstances yeah. or whatever that the show provides, the backdrop provides. Yeah. And but they are recognizably human. Yeah, exactly. Or, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, but yeah, let's talk about that move to Vancouver and. Uh, what opportunities it provided for you? I mean, we're, what were you inheriting from season two, and you know, what did you sort of have to deal with in season three, and how did that did that move uh, change any of the storytelling? Um, yeah, I mean, it 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 completely did, um, but in a, in a really good and healthy way, I think, for the show. I mean, how often does a show get to completely change mm-hmm. a TV show, a basic cable TV show, <laughs> yeah. get to completely change its look and feel midway midway through? I mean, yeah. we moved to a different place, and immediately the first thing that we said was, we can't do the thing where we try to make Vancouver look like Los Angeles. Vancouver does not look like Los Angeles. So we have to move the show geographically, but because we had set up this idea of a global occupation, it felt like a great opportunity to introduce other places and things that we had not seen to make the show feel bigger and more expansive and more scopey and uh, bring in a bunch of new characters and see what the world outside the walls look like for real for the first time in the show. We had yeah. hinted at it, but now we really get to travel it. And then see what another colony looks like and, and how that works. And, we, you know, that that once we got over the initial straight panic of <laughs> how the hell do we do this, I think we really embraced it. And it made, I mean, I, you know, I think it's hard to say from within the production, but I think I'm one of the biggest critics of Colony that exists. I think season three is the is the best season that we've made because of the creative pressure we were put under to pull these things off. And it made us do things that I don't, if we had just stayed in L.A., we went down avenues that we would not have gone down. Yeah, and we were, we were fortunate we were able to keep the resource, which was the core cast. Mm-hmm. And the show is incredibly blessed with its core cast. Yeah. And we were, I think, justifiably nervous going to Vancouver, which is a very tight production situation about what we would encounter up there. And we got really fortunate with the crew. We inherited, mm-hmm. you know, we had an amazing producing director, Tim Southam, who brought in a bunch of people. And I mean, I think the production design on the show this year is, you know, incredible, in- unbelievable. That's cool. Yeah, that's great. Um, did it when when you guys first learned of this move? <clears throat> um, did it feel too soon to be going outside the walls? Did it feel too soon to be expanding the world? Or was the time... It, like, look, you were there from the conception of this show. Yeah. What, what, was the, what was the bigger plan, and was this a shift to you? So, I mean, here's kind of the, the sort of strange... We've had happy accidents on this mm-hmm. show. Um, Which every show does. Yeah, and then on unhappy accidents. Sure. <laughs> Very unhappy accidents. But, you know... We took the main characters... Season 2 ends with the main characters driving out of the colony. Where people will think that, oh, they already knew they were moving to Vancouver and this was part of setting up for that. It was like, no, 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 no. That track is laid way, 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 way back in the... You know, we were planning for that all the way through the writing of Season 2. We knew that was going to happen in at the top of 2016. We knew that was going to happen while we were still airing Season 1. Hmm. So... That, but that because it felt like that was the right time to see outside of the colony, and mm-hmm. there the plan was totally different there because we thought we, you know, we, the show was an LA show. We thought we were staying, yeah. staying in LA, 
So what happened was we were in the situation where we had taken the characters out of the colony, and then the question was, okay, we have that happy accident where they left, so we don't have to do this thing where, right. you know, <laughs> Poochie died on the way back to his home planet <laughs> to, start, to start season three, where they're already out. And now it just changes what we were going to do with the story hmm. once they're out there. Because we found out, we found out about the Van- Vancouver move before we started writing season three, but long after we planned season three, and at the end of the airing of season two. So if that makes sense, oh, so yeah. it was before we put first pen to paper in the writers' room, so we could go in with that plan. But there were a lot of things that Wes and I had planned out way in advance that we now had to adapt or throw out or add based on the change in geography. I mean, that was kind of the hor- horrifying thing we realized about the show during season one was how quickly it churns through story. Mm-hmm. So after two years in Los Angeles, we were we were done. It was, it was well, we had killed most of Los Angeles. <laughs> there is that. So, almost all. Almost all of it. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, so we we knew that we had to find, and the other thing is there is an endpoint for the show, mm-hmm. and it's a very specific endpoint, and it felt like therefore that it was likely that the mid midpoint of the show is going to fall during season three, and we didn't really want that to happen in Los Angeles. Oh, interesting. I don't know that we've ever talked about this. Uh, is that something that's discussed in the room? I mean, clearly it's discussed between you guys, but. Is that goalpost present to the other writers as you start to sort of put story together? Yeah, we're very... I mean, we keep everything from our cast because yeah. they can't be trusted. I remember them saying. <laughs> and uh, and also, it's just fun and hilarious. Absolutely. When, when other, <laughs> other times are you going to have Josh Holloway calling you and asking you for things? Um, but uh, And the delight of watching them open a script and not knowing whether they're going to make it to the end is yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. just... That's like checking the last writer, page to yeah. see if they have a line on You're the last page. People. That's not herbal, <laughs> you know? But uh, yeah, I I but we're very transparent with the writers. I mean, even you know, in every year, just because of the way the TV cycle works, you have new writers that are coming yeah. to the show for the first time in the room, and we kind of bring them in, and we just like pull pull open the curtain, and we're like, here here's all the stuff, because they need to know that so that they yeah. can they can write to the show. We, and I, we have been working towards something very dramatic, which is for the first three seasons of the show, we have a an alien head that we write any. I think we cannot solve on on a card and shove it in the head, and the head is labeled season four problems. Oh no! So if we have a season four room, we're going to begin it by opening up and dramatically reading all the cards. And yes. I presume most people will quit at that point. It, the season four problems was a funnier joke in season one. I bet. Now, now, yeah. the, the, that was really pressing. <laughs> but that is, that really is an interesting question because, like, looking at this sort of big story that you're telling and realizing that season three is probably about halfway through. You have to make certain moves, right? You have to move the story forward in certain ways to start to get to that end, end line. And as you say, this is a, a show that does churn through story pretty quickly. How do you balance those things, right? You don't want to make too big a move too early on. Also, you don't want to make too many big moves because they sort of lose meaning, right? I mean, I think there's a real sense coming into season three that it was time to, we didn't want to play hide the ball with the audience mm-hmm. about the information that it had been fun to slowly reveal a lot of mystery but at some point you don't want people to get frustrated at some point you want the cat to be out of the bag and the characters have to deal with the reality of the situation rather than just wondering about what is the reality of the situation so once you've made that story move suddenly you've opened up a lot of possibilities and you're racing towards something very specific and I also think that part of the challenge and fun of you know, I've heard other writers talk about this: is writing yourself into a corner and then seeing if you can get your, you know, fight your way out. So season two ends with a big cliffhanger. 
but it kind of invited possibility. Season three is going to end in a way that is going to make our season four life incredibly difficult. <laughs> Probably and hopefully in a good way, but that, yeah. that alien will be mocking us a lot. Oh, no. Yeah. 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 The alien head. Yeah. Well. Possibly. Possibly. Yeah. <laughs> but that is sort of the fun of a show like this, right? Is as much as there's a big plan, there's also a lot of discovery. Yeah. Uh, what was the stuff that you guys sort of came to in putting together season three that you can't wait for people to see or you guys can't wait to tackle in season four? Yeah, so this is actually this is a great question because, uh, you know, Car- Carlton and I always remember saying, you know, these these things are like, you know that you're, you're going to drive from New York to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. You just don't know where the stops and traffic yeah. and whatever else are going to come up so then the little you know little detours that you're going to take along the way and I think the show is very much you know we we've always had a plan we've always had a plan for this is the show these are the big big moments that we want to cover the big pillars that we want to hold the thing up but this is where we want to end with it we don't know the individual episodes that are going to come right. in season in season five until we get to season five um, because that comes out of the detail that that all you know, emerges as, as you write um, but I think there's. I think season three particularly, there's a lot of stuff that we're that we're doing this season that we had not talked about doing because of the unexpected detour to the Pacific Northwest. That we're covering off on ideas that we liked for the show, just doing it in a way that we hadn't anticipated doing it. If that makes sense. So, I think so. yeah, I mean, we never we we're going to see a new colony this year, mm-hmm. and we're going to spend a lot of time there. We we never really talked about doing that because we didn't think it was possible because if we pitched moving the show we would be fired right. so. that's irresponsible <laughs> but that's funny I mean then you guys had to figure out or, or maybe you had what is this new colony right yeah. like we know where we know generally what it looks like because you know where you're going yeah but how does it work? What are the rules there? Who are the people there? And that's all the fun. That's right. all the fun that we got to have. Yeah. And we had never been through that intellectual exercise before because, you know, it wasn't. It just right. wasn't on the radar. So, but the things that you get to do by doing that, and it actually gets to move the story forward much quicker <laughs> because once you see how things are running in other places and the fact that everything doesn't look like Los Angeles, mm-hmm. both, both the physical geography of the city and also the way things are run and the way the colony works, yeah. um, because these things are in the. The show is a metaphor for a, a, a big empire, mm-hmm. and the little colonies are kind of still, you know, even in, under the British Empire, India was still India. It was just, it had it had certain British trappings to it right. and things that were brought to it, but yeah. it, that was part of the problem of trying to keep the empire together was because all the colonies had their own, their own, it's like running a, a you know, a federal government where all the <laughs> states kind of have their own identity and personality and, and essence to them. Yeah, and there's a story, as you were kind of, I think, alluding to, there's a story opportunity, which is you get, in creating a new colony, you get to go back and think about how you would have done things differently in season one hmm. when you were first doing Los Angeles. That's interesting. Because you know what the underlying mythology is now. You've spent kind of, you know, two plus years chewing on it and figuring it out. And there was, you know, there was obviously always a the very strong concept coming into the show about what it was, but just by the process of sitting in a room for months and months and months, it becomes much more fleshed out. So now the question is, how do you want to reveal it? And you have the opportunity to take an entirely new setting and design that setting so that it's going to speak to the, you know, evolved mythology yeah. that you now are kind of trying to lay out in front of an audience. That's neat. So you can bring a totally new set of, the purpose with which you can tell this story is entirely different. Mm-hmm. Uh, this also sounds like it would be 
if people sort of either fell off or never got on board, which God knows why they wouldn't. Exactly. Uh, this seems like a great jumping on point for new viewers also. Completely. I mean, we've always said, you know, and those listening to the podcast, we've always said that we specifically designed the episode one of all seasons, the pilot, the, the premiere of season two, premiere of season three, as, a, as an onboard point. Mm-hmm. And if this is a show that interests you or would interest you, you don't have to feel like you're going to need to go back and watch 24 hours of television in order to get here. You can jump in at season three at the premiere and figure out what's going on. Hopefully you like the show enough that you want to go back. Right. Seasons are on Netflix, available now. And uh, you'll get a richer experience. Exactly. Obviously, exactly. But certainly... You but you can to. jump in and catch up you know, fairly quickly as to, as to what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which sort of suggests the question to me about... Um, and this is you know, a sort of in-the-weeds question, but writing exposition on a show like this, and you know, you're, you're faced with a lot coming into season three for a new colony and there's a lot that needs to be explained to our existing characters. Now there's a sloppy way to do that, a sort of clunky way to do that. So how do you guys get around that? Two camels in the background? Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Guys, look up that reference. It's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think that that's the challenge for it. It doesn't matter if it's a genre show or non-genre or show. Really? It's how you put your characters in conflict in a way that's going to expose details about the world. And... You know, we have this story device at the end of season two, which is you have a character who knows an awful lot about the world that he's not necessarily shared with everyone with his own agenda, driving mm-hmm. out into the countryside with people who don't know what he knows or what he doesn't know. So automatically you have a device there. But it's not just a device, it's a character relationship because yeah. there's all this built-in backstory. So automatically whenever you put him in a situation where you know, people are trying to get information out of them. Now you have this, the richness of the relationship to draw upon. So it's not just him spouting exposition. Hopefully it's coming out in the context of, well, why haven't you told us this before? Or a leverage point or something else. Yeah, yeah, and it's also, hopefully, to our audience, fascinating stuff. So there's certain exposition that people are leaning forward in their seat and they, mm-hmm. want, and they want to hear and they want to know more about the world. So the trick is doling that out. And I think, you know, that's exposition is always... It's, it's, the, it's the albatross of the writer. I mean, we... Yeah much of storytelling is exposition it's just dis- disguising it I mean the, yeah. the very best writers are disguise it and so you don't even know that it's happening um, but what we realize in writing the show is that there's a lot that you actually don't have to say and there's a lot that's better just sort of implied mm-hmm. or there in the seams of things that people can go and find on their own you, it's just targeting exactly what needs to be said and when and then leaving everything else to a visual or yeah. a look or something else yeah. where where, because I, I think, you know, the difference between, we were talking earlier about, you know, why movies are the way they are today is because everything needs to be explained and we can't have the audience walk out the door without understanding every single little beat of what happened. And if you think about the best movies, the things that inspired all of us, there was so much left unsaid and undone. I mean, if you think of Raiders of the Lost Ark, one of the most popcorny popcorn movies of all time, the things that are left unsaid in that movie that we don't know, Indy's relationship with Marion, you know, the things yeah. that are hinted at in that one conversation. The end, what the hell happened at the end? Is that, you know, does Indy, is Indy now a believer? Does he, mm-hmm. it, that's always supposed to be his arc in the movie. That is, that, that is good art because that is the thing that gets in your head and sticks to your ribs and stays with you and keeps you thinking about it. If you give everybody everything, there's nothing to be done. And then it's, you know, it's cotton candy. It's yeah. it's eaten and quickly digested. Yeah. The show is also helped by the fact that it's told by, you know, through very strict point of views. Mm-hmm. So it's really, we only ever allow, outside of the teasers, mm-hmm. we only allow the core cast to have a point of view. So it forces us into the situation 
you know, to have the discipline to only think about how that information is to be dispensed to each character. And we don't just have this kind of omniscient, we can walk into a laboratory and have things explained to you. Right. We don't allow ourselves that liberty, which is actually really helpful in terms of, you know, because we're doling this out to the audience more gradually, we don't have to have these big talky, yeah. what is going on in the world scenes. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I, I wonder, um, and just going back to what Ryan was saying about sort of leaving things unsaid or letting the audience either have questions or fill in some of these spaces. Is there pushback from the network on that? I mean, this is still, you're still making TV, right? This is still a popular medium. Well, ultimately, 12 strangers walk into a room in Las Vegas and fill out a form, and they know a lot about your show. So <laughs> yeah. there certainly are, is... It, I, but I don't think it's fair to necessarily throw it at the feet of the network. I think there was a justifiable f- frustration among our audience after season mm-hmm. two that things were, you know... There were a lot of big mysteries that were not being answered. Nice. And we, we felt that to some degree also, and it was confirmed by the things our network and studio partners were saying to us. And we knew that, and it was part of, it was part of the storytelling device, but it was also a storytelling device we had at that point used for two seasons, and, mm-hmm. and as we said earlier, it was kind of done. Yeah. So, you know, we were already heading in the direction of where they wanted us to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, it, and I'm sure it felt longer to you guys <laughs> living in those kinds of questions and not getting being able to answer them. Sort of yeah, I mean, not answering them explicitly, but right. like, you know, if you watch the show and you're paying attention... Yeah, there's a lot of answers that are right for there sure. for you. It's just, you know, you don't have a character verbalize it. But and you don't want to fall into the puzzle trap. I mean, right. the, the, you know, Westworld season one, to some extent, I think was spoiled for a lot of viewers by the fact that it felt like a puzzle box mm-hmm. and the internet got ahead of it. And then the show became less about the characters for a lot of people and then about the experience of solving the puzzle. Yeah. The answer. Exactly, the yeah. answer. And this is not a show about the answer. I mean, yeah. ultimately, I don't think that viewers return hopefully, you know, episode after episode because they care about, you know, the deep mythology of the aliens. Right. They may be interested in it, but they they care about, hopefully, the characters and the human story. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Um, and we'll get more of that. Season 3, tell me again when it premieres. Uh, May 2nd, 10 p.m. on USA. Okay. Is there stuff, and we touched on this a little bit, but is there stuff that you guys are really excited about stuff that you feel like you got away with stuff that you want to tease uh, for viewers I mean the guest cast we got this year to join incredible. our core regulars really? is, is unbelievable we're yeah. incredibly excited about it yeah Gra- Graham McTavish has joined the show uh, Graham was in uh, The Sixth Gun which mm-hmm. was uh, the first pilot that Carlton yeah, and I yeah. did together always been looking for something to do with him Great. he's an incredible actor uh, Peyton List mm-hmm. who uh, starred in uh, she's her her um the way most people know her is uh, from Mad Men. She was mm-hmm. um, Roger Sterling's uh, secretary that he uh, he runs away with, mm-hmm. and uh, t- terrific uh, terrific actor, and plays a huge role uh, in this in the story this year. It was just tremendous. Just Not awesome. to be confused with the Disney star of the same name. Correct. <laughs> is that right? Very convincing. There is one. There is a there's a Disney star with the same name that is um, very popular in the moment with the. Uh, the young kids in the social medias, and it's very confusing uh, for everybody. It could but, be helpful for Including you. our own network. <laughs> yeah. We're actually Great. pitching a documentary, which I'm pretty sure is going to go next year. It's called The Two Patents, mm-hmm. and it's about so, their, you know, the challenges. You're not calling it The Peyton List? Oh, oh my God. Shit. Come on. I'm going to show yeah. myself out. <laughs> <laughs> Get on it. Uh, what are you guys watching on TV? That's really good. Yeah. You yeah. have some time All right, You're an executive now. producer now. <laughs> Uh, you have a little bit of downtime, uh, I assume, now that you're in post-production. Are you catching up on television? Are you watching movies? Or is there anything you want to recommend to people? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I watch as much as I as I possibly can. <laughs> I've been doing a lot of documentaries recently. I watched the Andre the Giant documentary on I HBO, which is awesome. Nice. Really, really good. And uh, did the whole Ken Burns uh, 20 Hours of Vietnam. Oh, my God. Very proud of that uh, badge of honor. I feel like <laughs> That's I'm homework. I feel like I'm a veteran of the war now, myself. <laughs> yeah, no, you deserve a Count myself. Star. <laughs> yeah, I should. Something. Um, and uh, and uh, I just, uh, scripted-wise, I just, uh, just ripped through uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel mm-hmm. uh, with my wife, which we really really enjoyed it's just completely not this is not a show that I would ever write or probably if you pitched it to me I'm like I would never watch that <laughs> but I don't we just we started we heard good things and I was just totally just charmed by the whole thing absolutely really enjoyed it charming is the word for yes. sure yes I really only rec- watch things that Ryan already recommends for me so uh, <laughs> full disclosure yeah, exactly. Wes hasn't seen Breaking Bad so I've seen Wes that's weird some of <laughs> Uh, just Mind Hunters just finished. Yeah, it was so great, un- unbelievable. I mean, the actors they found, even for small roles, yeah. the way that that show is cast, the way that it is shot, and the pace at which it moves is yeah. just so impressive and so well executed. What's Aziz on? Sorry, show that everyone's watched. Master of None. I watched that show with my mouth open. It was like a, it was like a nature <laughs> documentary. Like I have no idea how those people, like anyone under a certain age, like. God bless you, but you are a different species as far as I'm concerned. So I was just stumped. Yeah, as like a documentary look into the way people in their 20s. Exactly right. that. Yeah. yeah. Totally I want to watch yeah. all of Girls with you. I just want to do it as like a live show <laughs> where we watch Girls and you just ask, ask questions. I'll probably stroke out halfway through. <laughs> go as deep as we can. <laughs> uh, those are good recommendations. Uh, congratulations, you guys, on another season uh, and hopefully more. We'll, we'll talk to you for season four. Great. We'll bring the alien head. Please do. <laughs> I'm going to need answers. <laughs> Having a few people over. Hey, I'm doing a live show May 12th. Um, it's sort of a writer's panel, sort of not. It's a version of a show that we've done in Austin at the ATX TV Festival a couple of times. It's called Breakfast with Phil. It's sort of a morning show format in which I chat with pal Phil Rosenthal, creator of Everybody Loves Raymond, and the star of Somebody Feed Phil on Netflix. Phil, of course, is a huge food guy. Um, and the conversation we're going to have on May 12th at the Dynasty Typewriter Theater Looks to be a really interesting one. Uh, The other guests are actor and restaurateur, Danny Trejo, um, which I'm so excited about. Danny has a couple of restaurants here in L.A. He has an amazing donut place called Trejo's Donuts and a terrific taco place called Trejo's Tacos. Um, And we've also got an old friend of mine who is an incredible chef, Nikki Nakamaya, who runs N slash Naka, which is this incredible... Um, sushi Japanese restaurant. You may have seen Nikki in the first season of Netflix's Chef's Table. If you haven't, it's absolutely worth watching. Her story is phenomenal. So I'm going to talk with Phil and Nikki and Danny Trejo about um, food and creativity and entertainment and community because these are all Los Angeles people. I think it should be really cool. I'm going to record it. I don't know what I'm going to do with the recording. It's not really a writer's panel, so please come out on May 12th. It's at 11 in the morning. Uh, We're going to get some food trucks or some food something there. I don't know what yet. This is going to be an event 
Uh, it'll be a benefit for some charity. I don't know what yet. I've been busy. Um, but Breakfast with Phil, May 12th, 11 a.m. at the Dynasty Typewriter Theater. Go to DynastyTypewriter.com for tickets, which are cheap. They're only 15 bucks. It's a part of the LA Times Food Bowl, which is a bunch of um, food events all over Los Angeles during the month of May. Um, we're happy to be a small part of that. Please come out. I hope to see you there, and we'll definitely uh, do some Q&A. You'll definitely get some food. You'll definitely have a good time. DynastyTypewriter.com for tickets. Let's get our guests up here. She is a playwright, and she has this really cool new show coming to stars called Vita. Please welcome Tanya Saracho. <laughs> welcome. Uh, adjust that so it's comfortable for you. Uh, are you guys familiar with the British series Peep Show? I thought you might be. You are savvy TV fans. Uh, Peep Show, Fresh Meat, uh, what was the police show called? Babylon, which I really liked. Sorry, I forgot my notes. Um, please welcome Sam Bain. He has a new show called Ill Behavior. It is on Showtime. You can watch all of them on Showtime. It is great. And finally, uh, a screenwriter for The Devil Wears Prada, among others, 27 Dresses, many other uh, films, and the co-creator of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Please welcome Eileen Brosh McKenna. Welcome, you guys. I want to I, I want to talk to all of you. Um, I'm a fan of all of your work, and I've just got to watch Vita as well, so I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, and the thing that all of you are really good at doing, among many other things, is in a pilot script, uh, writing characters that are undeniable. You know who these characters are right off the bat. Uh, and it was true in Peep Show, it was true in Fresh Meat, it's true in Crazy X, true in Vita. Uh, I want to talk about your approach to introducing characters in a pilot, because that can be a very difficult thing, right? A pilot has a lot of work to do. Mm. Uh, let's start with you, Eileen, and talk about Crazy X. And I actually, I actually posted on Twitter the first time we introduced Rebecca, so if you want to see it, it's on my Twitter. Uh, at Eileen B. McKenna, I posted that page. Um, you know, I think that the... I, I was going back and looking for scene des character descriptions because people were talking about online, and I realized that usually the, the lead character is the one that we've described the least, or I've described the least in the script, because you want to see them doing something. And a lot of times, I think, uh, especially beginning writers, have a tendency to put all the detail into the description, and you, especially with a main character, you should be able to get what the character is like without ever reading a description. And I went back and I noticed how much in particular I'll notice, I'll, I'll I'll um, call out like a particular item of clothing or, um, you know, uh, just a particular small detail as opposed to saying, you know, um, she's the type of woman who believes God is in her soda bottle or whatever, you know, not, not anything too abstract, yeah. but you want to um, have it be something that you see in, in practice. Mm. And I think in general, when you're 
beginning writing, you have a tendency to do too much setup because it's kind of the fun stuff and it's maybe the stuff you talked about the most and I find, I don't think I've ever written anything where we didn't pair out tons of stuff from the beginning and so you want to find a way to introduce your characters where they're doing critical action in the story already. They're starting to pull the levers of the story right from the beginning because otherwise you'll have sort of set up-y scenes and then also um, I have a firm rule about no starting on alarm clocks, <laughs> um, unless you're Groundhog Day. <laughs> I, and that is something I want to pick up later, these sort of things that new writers fall into. But, but for now, uh, Sam, tell us about, was Peep Show developed with, and again, I should say you co-created this with Jesse Armstrong, your longtime yeah. writing partner. Um, was it created for Mitchell and Webb? Like, how, how did it work, or did you know who those characters were before the actors came in. Yeah, we created it, wrote those characters for those guys, and, um, is that better? And, uh, yeah, that's the first time I've ever done that. So it was a very different process to writing a pilot where mm -hmm. you don't know who's going to be playing the part, because we knew them as people and thought they were funny <laughs> people, and wrote characters that would make them even more ridiculous than they already were. But yeah, even so, you sort of have to craft a persona, right? And so how do you get that on the page? Do you remember? I know this was a while ago, Tim. Well, I think with pilots, you know, um, when we started out, we used to write lots and lots of backstory and description, and I, we stopped doing that. Now we just sort of write one line, because in a way, you haven't got time to... It might help you to know, but you want to just nail someone's worldview, essentially. Mm -hmm. That's the simplest way I can put it. Do you remember, um, it, for example, in Fresh Meat? I mean, I rewatched that pilot recently, and it's a pilot I come back to quite often because those characters really do jump off the page as soon as they're seen. Mm. Do you remember descriptions or, or even conceiving of those characters? Yeah, again, it was like very much a one-line thing of wanting certain types, but then obviously you want those types to be more than types. Right. Um, is there feedback here, or am I? They're not interested. Okay. <laughs> I just hear, hear an echo. Yes. Um, one thing I stopped doing as well was writing any kind of physical types. Mm -hmm. Because I think casting should hopefully surprise you in a good way. And like, on that show, we had a very much sort of colorblind casting process of casting whoever's right for the part. Mm -hmm. We had actors who were black or white for different parts and different sizes or genders. And I think that, that can be a really exciting way to do it not be too specific about who that person is. Absolutely. I mean, it feels like if you know the voice of your character, that's the important thing on the page. And then when it comes to casting, you can sort of open it up. Um, Tanya, let's talk about writing the pilot for Vita. Yeah, I'm I was trying, you're so articulate about your process. And I, I, every time people are like, what's your process? I don't have a process, obviously. <laughs> you have to have a process, because we're here. But I, so I was thinking, because I, I, when I used to write plays, I still write plays. When I, but when I used to write more plays, I used to like light the incense and the candle and then like pray to the muse. And I'm not, I literally did pray to the muse. And, um, and I sort of started the pilot like that too. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and then I would see what happened. And I have all these recordings of the sisters talking to each other, little, little to line thing. But like, so I would do the, and I would do the voice. So, and the voice in one character was coming out very, she was talking like this, you know, and she was very like, and so I, I, I don't know what, because I'm, I'm a former actor, so like it, that was sort of the base, mm -hmm. you know, and then, um, 
and the other sister was coming out a little flighty, and then I was like, okay, I know the colors. I don't know what they do. I don't know what's happening. And then, and then I, I wrote the, the pilot. But I know that a network does like require you to do, you know. But they pitched this to me, so like it was there was like a, I didn't need to convince in a way. So uh, um, what like, was it they had pitched you? What were you? The notion of gentrification, uh -huh. which is a gentrification of a Latinx space by an upwardly mobile Latinx or Latinx force, um, and I use the term Latinx uh, to be gender inclusive. Um, and to you know, because Latino is a very, very patriarchal term. Um, so, um, so, so that's that's the, okay. and that, and they said we want a female millennial, you know, east side of LA. Uh, here's this article about gentrification and chipsters, Chicano hipsters. Can you do something with this? <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah. So you had these ingredients. Yeah, though, they gave and me this ingredients. Then you have to start to create the character. And then I started doing the little like uh -huh. they would talk and. What were they talking about? I, no, oh, this <laughs> nonsense. It never made it into the thing, but it's like, you know, just how they sound. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't because uh, I was trying to figure out like, wait, what's my process? Wait, I have all these record, and I still do it. Um, That's neat. I, and sometimes in my writer's room, I'd be like, no, no, look, something that sounds like this, but not this, you know? And they're like, what? Um, so it, it's, it's um, I think that's my process. That's how I started this anyway. You well, know, it is, like, I mean, I think you guys can speak to this, uh, having you know, done a few shows now. It's an ever-evolving process, right? Sometimes the show tells you what it is. Sometimes you have to approach a show from a different angle. As you guys have moved through different shows and different rooms and different types of shows, how has your process evolved? Well, I wrote movies for 20 years, so that's different in that you're writing for someone that you hope might show up and you don't know who it is and you don't have a chance to write for them. And what I love about TV is you get to write for people and so you have sort of an idea of who the character is and you, but um, I really love and Rachel and I really love to write to the person that we've cast. And so all of the characters on our show have kind of morphed and it's not even that they become the actors, but it's sort of like things we know the actors are capable of or is a great use of them or talents or skills they have. And what I love about that is I really, truly, in my heart, really wanted to write Hollywood movies of the 30s and 40s. And I wanted to be somebody who wrote for Cary Grant and wrote like six Cary Grant movies and then wrote like six Irene Dunn movies. And because I like things that are about stars and about actors and um, but when you write a movie you don't have a lot of chance to do that so like on Devil Wears Prada they cast Emily Blunt who had never done an American movie and we had the table read and she did it in a British accent which was not how the character was written and as sort of as she started I was like wait a minute what's going on like are we all aware of how amazing this woman is. So I dragged her to a cafe. She was like 24 years old. I dragged her to a cafe and we went through the whole script together to like Brit mm -hmm. Britishify it and sort of make it more Emily. And there's some moments in the movie um, that are like, uh, you know, the one where she's like, I'm hearing this and I want to be hearing this. <laughs> that's an Emily, that's a blunt family joke that, you know, just right. got incorporated. So that's a true pleasure for me is to be able to do that. And um, so once you know, and obviously Crazy X was created with, with an actor and so uh, created in conversation with Rachel. So I, I really love about TV writing. Also, you can just sort of see an actor that you love and incorporate them into the show and write towards them. And that's truly a pleasure because feature writing is extremely theoretical in yes. its nature. I remember I think the first time we talked yeah. was sort of in the first season of Crazy X. And you really, 
you really sort of grabbed onto that collaborative yeah. aspect of TV. And I wonder how, you know, you've now been doing this for yeah. three years and you have a bunch of other projects, yeah. all of which are, or most of which are with other writers as well. Um, has your collaboration in the room changed? Or does the room it's, sort of run the it's same? It's hard to say. It? We have the same writers from the first day we yeah. started. Our, our room has not changed, which is unusual, I guess. And we just promote, well, all we did was promote two people. Um, and this is actually the first year one person's leaving and the rest of the, the staff is intact. Um, and, you know, I didn't, I had been writing alone in a room for a long time. And so I didn't know how to work with the staff. So it was pretty funny because. Uh, I, I figured out pretty quickly that they were all, all the scripts were going to need big rewrites. That's not a surprise to anyone. That's how TV works. Right. But a lot of showrunners rewrite them on their own in their house, and then it's just like the script comes back, and that seemed demoralizing for people. And the TV stuff that I had done was in comedy rooms where you sort of writing more communally. So what I did was I started doing the rewrites in the room with the writers there. So I, I opened my computer, and the script goes up on the board, and then I start rewriting. <laughs> but because I was like... You know, uh, I was like Nell, and I had been living alone in the forest. <laughs> I didn't know how to talk to people, so I would just like be writing, and the writers were like, "What is she doing?" So I learned. I had to learn how to say, you know, here are my notes and thoughts on this, and that's what I think we do. And we'd have a discussion. So now, anytime a, a draft comes in, we all read it. We have a discussion about what we need to do, and then every day I come in and say, "Okay, we're going to go look at the first act, and we're going to go do this and do that." And what's funny is, you know, there's a cycle of writers, so they all get assigned a script, and it takes you like, you know, eight or ten episodes to get through everyone once. And every they had to kind of see that I was an equal opportunity deleter, um, and that I we I that that I would delete our stuff, the stuff that Rachel and I had written, as quickly as I would delete somebody else's. And once they were sure that that was going to happen, on sort that there was a fairness to that. So it's it's very much everybody pitches in, and that was a new thing for me. And now when I go back and think about writing a movie, I'm like, wait, I don't get to revise this with ten smart, hilarious people <laughs> shouting at me. That sucks. Yeah. <laughs> They do so much of the heavy lifting so often. Well, they just, they're, you know, it's, we have a brain now that yeah. has 10 parts to it. Absolutely. Um, Sam, I'm curious to hear about uh, sort of those first few series that you worked on. And it seems like, I'm not sure about Peep Show, but for these shows that followed, did you and Jesse have a writing staff? And is that un that's unusual for British television, isn't it? Yeah, for comedy it is. For drama yeah. it's not unusual at all, but for comedy it's quite unusual in the UK just because of the finances involved. Yeah. But for Fresh Me, we had a writer's room. And for Babylon, we had one other writer that we worked with. Um, but it was not really a big uh, transition because when you're in a writing partnership, which we were for 15, 20 years, yeah. you're already a writing team mm -hmm. of two. So having a collaboration, just extending that to, to some people we handpicked Absolutely. was not a huge stretch. And uh, yeah, we also try to be sort of you know inclusive in rewrites and not, as you say, you create a bad vibe by just sort of Throwing stuff out, yeah. But you know, sometimes you have to make hard decisions and... But if you include will. people in it, then they know why. Like, one of the things in the first season was we developed an aesthetic because they, they would start to see why certain things were going out and why certain things were coming in. Yeah. And so they, you, you, you develop a group aesthetic so they understand what your taste is and what's never going to be in there. And then the drafts get better because of that. On Fresh Meat, we really encourage the writers to rewrite their own scripts with our help. But sometimes that would process would have a point where it wasn't going to go any further yeah. and we had to take them back. But we would ideally we would get them to write everything and we would sit around and just, you know, eat chocolate bars. So <laughs> right. but it doesn't always work like no. that. Oh my god, I feel so guilty. Why? I just 
go away and rewrite it because we first season we had 10 weeks and there yeah. was no it, it, we were, it was so fast also we had to build the world mm-hmm. and we had 10 weeks so I, I you know I, like by the time we had the finale we were I basically wrote it in the trailer at, on set you know mm-hmm. by myself and like sort of broke it um, by myself so there was no time but hopefully I will implement well, it's good. Here's the thing, you know, they people want to help, and what I always say to people when they're starting a show is like, you can do whatever you want with them. You can have them just like hang out and check their email and pop in and talk to them for an hour a day, like, or you can, you know, have everybody write a draft, or you can have four people write a draft, or you whatever is works for you. And writers, I think, are really fine with it as long as it's fair, it's clearly communicated to them, there's no favorites, that's a real shitty thing yeah. to do to people, that uh, the hours are good. I yes. mean, I started out saying the hours will be good and everyone's like, yeah, we'll see. Um, and what we don't, hours? 10 to 6. Oh, nice. And nobody stays past six. And um, it was funny because this year I remember I said to somebody, oh, how many times have we stayed late? Because I didn't remember. And like three writers were like five times. Oh, <laughs> they knew. <laughs> like they knew exactly when. And then I also, if you have a young, if you have a baby under two or something, you just leave whenever yeah. you feel like you're done and you need to go home. Um, nice. So... Uh, you know, I, I, as long as it's fair and consistent, it's like parenting in a way. It's like as long as it's fair and consistent, they're fine with it. And a lot of people, the showrunner rewrites. So a lot of, a lot of shows, they use the room as like you break, you, you, you audition ideas, you get punch up, you get thoughts, you get notes, but you really are writing by yourself. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as the writer's room knows that. And as long, cause, cause when you get into troubles, when it's like, oh, she takes this person's script, but not right. this one. And she gives notes to this one. And, and I don't understand because that sucks, but she likes this. Pr- you know, it's when yeah. it feels arbitrary and, un- and unfair. We, I, I do feel like I have a process at the top. Like, um, we do a lot of um, divide and conquer. So I like, I break, okay, you go um, and, you know, you go and break this character's arc. You go and break, say like, you know, all yeah. eight of us and I get the script coordinator, my assistant, everyone's involved and they just go off because everyone's a writer, you know. Yeah. And they go off, we come back, we, we pitch. That's sort of how the blue skying happens. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the script, uh, when the voice is so specific I do like uh, I do like sort of like take it a little more I do that but they're sitting yeah. there but they're sitting yeah no, and I, I think that's not unusual yeah. especially yeah, in the yeah, first yeah. No, it's not unusual I, we do 10 to 4 and we have only stayed late a few times and that too. gives you time to do yeah. the other writing mm-hmm. um, I'm curious to hear and, and how you guys did this early on but you know as a writer who's been on staff the best thing a showrunner can do for me is give me a clear target yeah. Tell me whether it's what she needs or what this show is, specifically what this show is. And Tanya, it sounds like you were still sort of figuring out what the show was because everything was so rushed. So how did you create that target for your staff? Well, we sort of figured it out together. Yeah. I, 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 I Which arrived, is valuable too. Yeah, I arrived knowing some things like from the rooms I've been in that I didn't want to do. Mm. But I didn't have things, well, I do want to do it this way. Mm-hmm. You know, I had, no, don't do that, and don't keep them late, be respectful, things like that, you know? Um, don't otherize the one male <laughs> the way I, I had been otherized as the only female, you know? Like, I was like, be mindful of the one male. <laughs> uh, you know? I appreciate that. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, because, and also, um, you know, it's a very queer room, don't otherize the straight people, you know? Like, it's like... Thank uh, you it, so much. Yes. <laughs> it's like, it just... Um, backwards you know a little bit but I didn't have like but do these things so it all sort of got figured out together I didn't know for a long time that I didn't have to do it all by myself and Mm -hmm. that was the Mm. old 
artistic director of a non-for-profit in me that I was yeah. like, well, I'm the one who has to you know, make sure the toilets are washed and the <laughs> box office gets done and I write the shows and I'm, you know, like, yeah. but then they were like, no, there's a ton, a ton of people to help you, you know? And th that I had to be like, okay, all right. Yeah, and you have like to trust those people. Yeah. Absolutely. And now it's, it's better. But the first season, also, I, I keep saying the 10 weeks and it happened so fast. They gave me two weeks to not just find the writers, but to close their deals. So it was a week, really, and yeah. that was impossible. I read so many, you know, <laughs> but in a week, you know, it was really, fa everything was really fast. I'm curious to hear about um, the stuff you responded to as you were reading to staff. For, for all of you guys, as you're reading to hire people, what is the stuff that you respond to generally? Well, for a comedy, it sounds obvious, but you want to see that it can be funny because you can kind of teach someone, it sounds grand, but you know, you can teach someone to write a story or you can help them write a story, but you can't really teach them how to be funny. Yeah. So that's the main thing. And does it matter what kind of funny to you? As long as it's stuff that I find funny. Because <laughs> right. I can't, if it's theoretically funny, I can't respond to that. It has to be, you have to have a personal yeah, yeah. engagement with it. Yeah. Uh, Eileen, what am I getting? I mean... Uh, the shocking thing is how, li how little of the script you can have time to read and how quickly you make a decision. I mean, you can get decide halfway through the first page, this, isn't, this person and I are not going to have a shared vision. And the best ones are when you start reading it and you want to read till the end. That's always a great. And so my, cast, my hiring a writing process was, so Rachel is incredibly forgiving both of writing and of acting. She loves everybody. She loves everything. Sure. She would send me scripts and be like, this is so great. <laughs> and um, she, I think, was just so pleased that people wanted to be with us, you know. So I'm certainly much more of the old witch. And so I, I really, I, when I, I narrowed it down to people whose scripts I really liked, who I read the whole thing and enjoyed the whole thing. And then I based it on people's personality in the room. In and, let me interrupt for mm -hmm. one sec. In that yeah. script phase, did it matter what the script was about? Oh, that's a good question. Actually, no one's asked me that. That that was a little bit because we were writing about women and we were writing about romance, but we were writing sort of a fucked up version of that. And um, so, like, one of our writers is had been Rachel's writing partner for some of her music videos, and he decided he wanted to be a writer, and he wrote an extremely dark version about a suicidal man and it starts at a funeral and it was very dark so it wasn't like what you would normally submit for our show um, but I did I wanted an eclectic group and I you know I wanted it's sort of the same as casting I wanted all different so we have older writers younger writers people of color we have you know people from the midwest we have people from poor families we have you know we wanted a sort of not just just inclusive, a diversity of experience yeah. yeah inclusive but you know sort of some of the inclusivity things that you might not obviously think mm -hmm. of like really having people who grew up with without a lot of money um it was an important just aspect and um an age a big age range was important to me too um so that somebody could um, understand my Mac Davis references. Um, well, I think the show reflects that too, honestly. Yeah. I think that comes across in the show, this sort of. And I will say also, you know, with casting, of one of the things is blind is a good way to go into it, but I have found that doesn't work because there is still a default that if you don't stipulate, you won't get. So I will say this person is. Uh, not unconventional body type or, you know, I, I, I've been really specific about, sometimes about 
race or orientation or something because they, to, so that they can look for something as opposed to being, you know, it's sort of like as opposed to screening because if you screen, agents will send you the same people and like, we just ended up with a lot of skinny people in the beginning of the season and I was like, this takes place in the suburbs, like, this doesn't make any, and, and also this is just not what people are like and this doesn't take place in the Brentwood Starbucks, so like, <laughs> I would say to the casting director, you have to give me different body types and that could also mean tiny people, tall people, mm -hmm. just like, so that it looks like a, a mix, but you have to kind of be aggressive about it. And yeah. same thing with writing and directors. You can't just say, you have to go and get what you want. I think with uh, that, it's interesting because in, like I said, in the UK in Fresh Meat, we did blind cast and colorblind. I'm doing a film at the moment, which is ensemble, and I, sort of, I suggested that we should do the same thing. And they said, no, this is America. You have to tell, tell us what the race of the character is. Interesting. But that, they're very progressive and it was a very positive thing it was like no as you say you know we, we don't want to get the same people and we you know you need to write in the script make a decision on 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 the demographics the racial background and I found that it we're a bit surprising but actually it's been really good for the project because it's forced me to think more carefully about writing different characters mm -hmm. gender race and it meant that we have a, definitely have a diverse cast which we may not have had and also this, the r racial stuff has become more part of the project, which I'm not unhappy with. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk to you, uh, Sam, as well about, as we were talking about process, you did work with a writing partner for 15 years, uh, if not more, and now with Ill Behavior, and I assume these features as well, mm. you're writing on your own. Tell me about that transition and how it is working without a partner. Well, I have a framed photograph of Jesse on my desk. Sure, <laughs> of course. He's never that far away. <laughs> And, um, no, you know, it's weird because we did spend, you know, we did nine seasons of Peep Show together and four seasons of Fresh Meat and Babylon. And um, I think he's also doing stuff on his own. He's yeah. doing a big HBO. He's, not, he's fine. <laughs> Don't worry, Don't he's, worry about he's fine. He's doing an HBO drama called <laughs> right. Succession, which is going to be amazing. Um, I think we tend to write more comedy drama on our own. Mm -hmm. I think we were both conscious that doing Peep Show, I doubt I'll ever write anything as funny on my own because simply someone else competing with you to be funny <laughs> in a positive way is always going to lead to more jokes. Absolutely. And that's why so many partnerships of comedy writing existed historically and why teams always seem to write comedies because you just get a kind of brilliant, you know, scattergun approach to mm -hmm. just writing more and more funny stuff. Whereas on my own and on his own, we can write stuff which is going a little bit deeper in his mm. character and story. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to talk about writing uh, about things. About, you know, it feels like I think a lot of us had this uh, realization a couple of years ago following an election when we said we can't just write jokes anymore. Mm. You know, we have to write, we have to write about something. Uh, all of this stuff matters. Um, and obviously, Tanya with Vita, you're getting that opportunity. And in fact, they came to you and said, we want this to be about something. But, um, I, you know, you also have these great characters and you have these great stories. And I'm curious to hear about telling a story that is still about something, you know, without that being the whole story. I always felt like I wrote necessary theater because um, I'm not a citizen. Um, I always feel under threat, you know, my... my uh, visit here <laughs> always feels like it's under threat, and other, not just 
since the, I mean, mm -hmm. this yeah. country has not been friendly to immigrants yeah. for a long time. Um, every time that I come back in um, to the country, and this is pre this administration from Scotland, uh, when I go to your island, um, I come back and three hours usually they hold me. Um, wow. I, uh, and I, don't, you know, I have, yeah. I have all the paper, but it's like a three-hour and can't use your phone, can't use the bathroom. I mean, it's not, it's not a friendly place. So, um, it, it, so for me, it's always been like that. That was theater for me. But mm -hmm. then now I'm new to the world of. I've only been in TV like five years, um, and I love it that they're now they're letting me work on necessary TV. Yeah. To me, be that for so many reasons because, you know, it's a political act to put a brown person on, on mm -hmm. you know, on, on, on stage, on screen. Um, and for so long, and a little bit about the casting, um, um, I don't, I do, I color, I do color seeing casting, not colorblind casting, because I am so, I need Latinx only. Nobody can pass for Latinx. I don't do that, that nonsense you know and so it so that search it, you you realize man casting some casting directors are not like you said um they they, they have the few people when i was working yeah. other shows it'd be like well we want we want you know a person of color here well be specific because the default also they'll send you a black person but they're you know brown uh, uh other yeah. other brown people like we never get access to them and then we, we would ask they they had the same three people, you know, that they would send. And it's like, where, it, but so I work with uh, Carmen Cuba, who is amazing. She did Stranger Things and Sensei. She's just amazing. And she's Latina. So, like, it helped a lot to have that shorthand. And she's, because I'm not just reaching into the Latinx community, right. Latinx queer. Yeah. I have a non binary actor on my show. Like, it's very specific. So um, I'm so glad that I had her, but I, it could have gone. Absolutely. The Can other I tell way. you what the last frontier is also with this? It's just everyone being so fucking gorgeous on television. Yeah, no, I've sure. had it. I've had it. And like you, you know, no, I'm not kidding. Cause it's like, it's more diverse. But yeah. if you look at network shows, it's like, I just always think some of these characters, like someone would walk over to them and be like, holy fuck, you should be a model. <laughs> like, oh my God, you're stunning. Why are you working at this um, coroner's office? Like get out of here <laughs> and get an agent. And it's really, you know, when you are now, when you are trying to cast someone who is not super conventionally good looking, yeah. There's all these like weird coded words for like mm -hmm. them being likable or relate, and then I'm always like, if you don't think this person is attractive, you must think I'm a troll. <laughs> like all of us who have brought this, like w it, uh, it. So that is another thing of just of just, and obviously because attractive is meaningless. This I is just it's culturally determined. Person. What I used to say, real person, yeah. real people. <laughs> so I always went for the real people roles. <laughs> Yeah, but it's also, just, you know, it doesn't, I mean, you were just telling a story about walking into a cafe and walking out with a gorgeous man. Like, you know, it's like, it doesn't, and also just the, the idea of what is attractive, it really is just strange now to me to see how much, like, people still, it, it's just still, it's just people who are conventionally attractive. It's not who is attractive, but it's just so, conventionally attractive. We have to start yeah. thinking outside well, of that box. I have seen Fresh Meat where we... There was a character written as meant to be a, a big p person, and we didn't find them. We we cast someone who wasn't, which I always thought was a real shame. I don't know why. Maybe some other casting director would have found someone, but it's also also partly actors that are a self-selected group. Somewhat. And you know, the more right. confident people are going to be actors. And right. Generally, they're 
the hotter one, so it's a hard. It's well, a hard well, but thing. when you're doing comedy, as you know, the hotter ones are terrible. Yeah. So <laughs> it's like, and, and and so sometimes I'll meet somebody who's really hot and they're funny, and I'm like, what well, wasn't? It's like, oh, I was fat as a kid. It's like, oh, I get it. No, I got it. No, it's like, no, I had three eyes. You know, I had one remote. Because nobody gets to be that way without some. I just think if you're if you're really really like conventionally attractive from birth, you're sort of like a celebrity, and so you don't ever really the world is never reflected sure. in the way same way. You're not funny in the same way. So, if you are, it's sort of an accident of something. But it is you have to again, it's it's race. You have to it's you have to be aggressive in saying, and then you have to defend those choices. And I just am shocked that even though there's just we're in a time right now where people say the right things, but they haven't quite. Cosmetics metabolized yes. it in terms of so I think we're still and I have to say I think that um, the Brits often do it much better like I was watching all the black mirrors and like those are inclusively cast from from the get-go no big deal is made of it and it's just a variety of people and yeah. and Brits also have a lot of actors just in general who are not yeah. stunners you know in the well, way well, that thank you thank you very much <laughs> they do a lot of, a lot of famous people be. with some messed up teeth, and yeah. you know. <laughs> but I want to, I want to ask you, I, I want to ask you, Aline, and I want to ask all you guys. Yeah. You know, the place where we have the most control yeah. during this entire process is in the script phase, yeah. right? Uh, so you're working on a few pilots now. Yeah. What are you doing in those pilots to make sure that when you hand it to casting, when you hand it to executives, they are going to look for, you know, not, uh, not all stunners. Well, we work with a, a casting director on Crazy X, and she's doing the pilot that we're doing, Felicia Fasano, and she really gets it. Yes. And she really gets it, and she is really aggressive about finding all different types of people. Um, but honestly, I just have become very bossy. And I, I you know, I am working with a, on this pilot with a much younger writer, and I just, I think, sometimes scare her with how... Um, aggressive I am about wanting certain people and and not feeling like other people are right and being very outspoken about it and I sent a very outspoken email to the casting department this week and they printed it out and put it up on the wall um, because it was so what they it's it, it was what they were trying to do and what they're trying to say and they were happy that I was supporting them in that because the casting people want to they see wonderful people and they want them included and they were excited that I was pushing for them and helping them you know it's just um, it, it's it's listen it's a commercial business it's these are not um, you know these are not nonprofits and yeah. and you forget their corporations and a lot of the places that are doing the most aggressively good um, programming now are their data mining companies. I mean, they're not there to, if they're, they're changing the culture, it's a little bit of an accidental process. So you're trying to harness their process and the goodwill to kind of get what you want and need, but sometimes you just have to be very forceful. I think by bossy you mean you have good leadership qualities. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just have to be sometimes quite forceful with people, so... I send a lot of emails. <laughs> well, good. I mean, look, ultimately you have to make the thing you want to make, right? Otherwise, yeah. what is the point? Um, to that end, I want to talk, uh, Sam, uh, for a moment about ill behavior, which uh, I talked about at the top. It's a great show on... Uh, you can Why? What did you hear about me and Tanya? <laughs> <laughs> oh, just wait. Kidding. Um, and and uh, this has to do with Crazy Ex-Girlfriend as well, but uh, ill behavior goes real dark. And I don't want to tell people what it's about because there's this terrific twist in the first episode. 
And it's really funny. But I want Let's to talk stream about it right now. Getting that story that you clearly wanted to tell on the screen, and it's not something you could find on network TV. It's not a typical story. I will say what it's about, because it's weird not to. It's basically about <laughs> someone who um, has cancer, and he doesn't want to have chemo. He wants to do natural healing, and his friends think he's going to die, so they kidnap him and force-feed him chemo oh. while keeping him kidnapped for three months in a basement. That's the show. <laughs> and it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was the question? Just, just about even getting to make that show, uh, yeah, getting to put that story on screen. It was quite a hard show to pitch. I bet. I got, I got a lot of bemused faces, a bit like Arlene's just now. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that uh, it was something I was very passionate about because it was about issues that I felt strongly about, mm -hmm. about kind of friendship and ethics of intervention. And there's a lot of comedy and drama there that I wanted to get into. Um, and, yeah, I think the BBC did me a great service by just committing to it. Obviously, it helps that I'd done Peep Show and the producers had done In Between Us, which was a huge hit. Mm -hmm. So they believed in us. But, yeah, I'm really proud of the way the show you know, ended up. It's really great. Did you have to pitch it or did you write it first? I wrote it as a film originally. Oh, really? And like a lot of films, it didn't get made. <laughs> So the producers said, actually, there's a, th a three-hour version of this oh. where you can go deeper into the characters. Mm -hmm. And I think they were right. Normally, I would be quite resistant to expanding something because normally comedy gets yeah. better when you can make it shorter. But because this, this and so many issues and sort of relationships to dig into, I felt it would actually be... So there are okay. six? Three hours. Six yeah. three hours. Six. Uh, and it really does. Yeah, it gets six, to breathe. Hours, yeah. You get to you get to live with those characters and understand why they do what they do. Uh, uh, that's interesting. And Elena, I wanted to talk about this yeah. season of Crazy X, yeah. which was not afraid to go real dark. Yeah, we went real uh, dark. Did you guys watch the season? Let's. Uh, I want to get into this, and then we'll turn it over to you guys for questions. Um, can you walk us through the conversations that took place around uh, you know your mid season around mid season right yeah. to leading up to this? Suicide attempt. Suicide attempt. Well, you know, um, this, this show is a conversation between me and Rachel, and it started the day we met, and it continues to this day. And you just, the process is like two ladies in a room going blah, 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 and drinking tea and eating <laughs> snacks. And um, we always felt like we owed it to go, because it's about being a crazy person, right? It has no meaning, really. But, um, and what does that actually mean? This is an exaggerated version of the romantic love and obsession that we all feel, but she has a reason that she feels this so strongly, and she has underlying mental health issues. So, um, yeah, we really went straight at it, and we um, we did a ton of reading. We always do a ton of reading between seasons and a ton of talking, so we knew we were going to go there. And then... Um, you know, it was, it's, it's, we're not issue, like we've covered a lot of issues, suicide and abortion, and, but we don't really approach it from an issuey place. We, we approach it from a personal place. And really what the show ultimately, the season ends up being about is how much is she responsible for the things that she does. And so even though she's ill and she grapples with that, but within that, what is she responsible for? Because she continues to do, like, not great things after her diagnosis, right? Once you get a diagnosis, it's not like all of a sudden you're just, you know, in, in the free and clear in terms of, like, being healed. So she continues to do things that are not great, and the show and the characters around her never really took her to task. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the season, um, Rachel and I were sort of talking about 
how to kind of wrap up that question. And Rachel had this um, amazing idea for a song called Nothing Is Ever Anyone's Fault. And so we sat in my living room, and she's a songwriter and I'm not, but I just threw a bunch of thoughts at her, which she wrote. And I have a picture of her actually doing this, because her brain, while she's synthesizing song ideas, is really, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, she's so confident. She's such an expert. And so she wrote this amazing song you know, based around this conversation, these thoughts about, you know, how we just have a human tendency to let ourselves off the hook because we know why we did things. And that's a lot of what the show is, really, is like when you get obsessed with someone uh, or when you're behaving in a way that isn't great, you know why. You live inside of that. You're not looking at it from the outside. You have your own reasons why you made these choices. And for her, she's, when someone says to her, it's not your fault, she's very excited to hear that because she doesn't really want to be responsible. And so really what the season was for us is like, given that she's had trauma in her life, given that her parenting situation is not ideal, given that she um, has a mental illness, within that, how much is she responsible for her own behavior and her own choices? And so even though the, the season really, it deals with you know borderline personality disorder and suicide and all those things, for us it really was this conversation about you know, when you live inside your own face and you are making choices and saying things and doing things, everybody has a backstory. You know, and everybody has a pretty good excuse, and most people have several good excuses. Um, but, you know, what is her personal responsibility within that? So that, that's really what this season was about for us. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And it was so well externalized, too. I mean, we got to see in every episode how those things sort of came to bear. Yeah, and all the other characters are dealing with that, too, in a certain, in a certain you know. And so there were a lot of conversations and a lot of great writer's room conversations about, and we have giant lists of all the effed up things she did. The assistants have a running list of all the, of all the ter terrible things that Rebecca's done. And then at the end of the season, she ends up taking responsibility for the one thing she actually didn't, isn't responsible for because she feels responsible. And she understands, finally, that she's responsible for all the other things she's done. And just one side thing is that Rachel is like the most phenomenally likable person, I don't know if anybody here was at the concert that she mm -hmm. did, they did a couple of concerts, and Rachel was annoyed at the sound was messed up, the sound mix was messed up, and she continued to hector the sound people about it through the whole show, and it was hilarious, and like warm, and funny, and somehow loving to the sound people, um, and she's able to do that, and do like the most un technically unlikable things, while being totally lovable, and we really exploit that on the show, but I actually think there is a bill in uh, protagonist bias, which is like why we, you watch The Sopranos and you're like, well, good point, Tony. He did not take his hat off in the <laughs> Italian restaurant. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a protagonist bias where you're like with them. And so one of the things that we were exploring was not just in our own personal life, how we tend to ex exculpate ourselves, but how we as viewers I mean, that's one of the great things about TV now is like you're just in with Don Draper and you're like, you gotta fuck the secretary, you know? <laughs> so you're, we, we wanted to explore that too and Rachel is an amazing vehicle for that because yeah. she, gets away with she can get away with anything. Yeah, and you had that too. Well, we, I was thinking about one thing I co-wrote before Lions, this mm -hmm. movie which yeah. was seen as like a comedy about suicide bombers. And I was always really worried that no one would like <laughs> them because, well, they're suicide bombers and terrorists, but we cast Riz Ahmed in the lead yeah. and he's the guy you travel with and obviously he, as you say, protagonist bias, also referring back to something else you said, 
the fact that he's really handsome <laughs> yeah, right. doesn't hurt. Right. You get away with a lot. Because right. you're sort of programmed to sympathise right. with beautiful people, so he's right. a handsome right. terrorist. Right, right, right. <laughs> Which he I, has also like sort of a bewitching, complicated beauty. Like you kind of want to see him from multiple angles. Right. He doesn't have a bland beauty. Right. So it really, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Those were my exact words when I met him. And uh, I think it really helps. You want to kind of, you know, go team. Yes. Well, but and, and beyond that, I mean, I think all of you are dealing with, and we see this just in the Vita pilot, these complicated characters, right? Nobody is just one thing. You're letting your characters be a whole slew of things. Um, and what's right. fascinating is this used to be movies were like this. Yeah. And movies used no to have more. interesting characters. And uh, now movies are Bruce just Banner big is giant. Bruce Banner and the Hulk. But now they're just <laughs> giant animatronic puppets and and movies and it's so disappointing. And you just like you think of the movie like Three Days of the Condor, you know, All the President's Men, Julia, Turning Point. I mean, those movies, those things are all on television now. Yeah. And all the complicated, interesting heroes are on television now. And it's having worked in both businesses, and I, Sam, I know you, you have too. It's like, if you want to get an interesting movie made, you're like, oh, who's financing that? It's like, oh, well, a guy who makes shoelace, t shoelace tips is putting in a certain amount. And then we have a, you know, an IT billionaire, and he's putting in a certain so He's just like, you cobble together. You know, and those used to be mainstream studio movies, and like, you know, Vita would have been a cool, you know, $18 million dollar Warner Brothers movie, and they just are not doing it anymore. So the interesting content is, is on TV now. For sure. Um, all right, I want to make sure we have time for questions. Uh Hi, my question is for Aline. First, I want to say I love Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, especially the last season. Um, so I had a television professor say that um, political correctness stifles creativity, and I was wondering if this is something, because you guys do deal with a lot of topics that yeah. are close to people's heart, like mental illness, yeah. and I was wondering if other people's criticism, whether they're good or bad, does, like, you know. I mean, I think people critiquing political correctness are just like looking for an excuse to be an asshole. <laughs> it's like I don't understand what's the problem with being considerate of other people's feelings. I have a room. I have a rule in the writers' room, which is if that joke offends you, it's not in the show. And we had a thing once where we had a joke that had made it through the room, and one of the writers was very upset by it. And he said, look, I know you're not going to change it because, you know, I've been on other shows and I, and I know it's funny and it's going to get a laugh at the table, so I know you're not going to change it, but I just want to tell you it bothers me. I'm like, dude, if you don't like it, it goes. Like, well, you'll get another joke. I don't understand this thing of people, anyone who's saying, oh, political correctness, they just want to be an asshole. Find a way to be funny without being mean to other people. Yeah. Uh, I just have a quick question about endings, and um, I'm probably a lot of us remember uh, midway through the run of Lost how they said, okay, we're at the end of season three, we have three more seasons and we're done. And it was kind of surprising in the sense that the typical television show wants to go as probably as long as it can or as long yeah. as the advertisers like it. And so I'm wondering, writing in these days where we see a lot of these great finales kind of coming yeah. a ways off, what, do you have an approach, do you take a, a different approach than you might have in years past to think about where, when you're starting a show, do you think about where these characters are going to end up at some point or maybe in a specific time, you know, time well, frame? We're about to do our last season. I want, somebody tell me, raise your hand, who, what are the best season fina uh, series finales you've seen? Oh, I love this game. What, yeah, what do you got? Uh, the Leftovers. People talk about that a lot. Sons of Anarchy. Never seen it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Parenthood? Yeah, that was good. Did Which everyone one? die? Par Parenthood? Parenthood. No. Parenthood. <laughs> Yeah, people love that one. 
The Shield was great. Did you okay. guys see the Shield finale? Okay. Yeah. What else? Any others? Yeah. The Office was pretty good. Yeah. Um, do you, so you're going into the last season, yeah. you know the last season's coming. Has there been conversation about what a last season would be from well, the beginning? Well, Rachel and I had sort of planned it, the show in four chapters from the beginning, so we do have an idea, but like, as you're saying that question, I'm like, <sighs> so tired. Because <laughs> um, we're just starting and I see the mountain ahead of us and, and you know, when, I, when you say you kind of, and I'm sure you guys, you kind of know the general, sometimes when I say Rachel and I had it planned out, people think we had planned out, like, did you know they were going to go here and he was going to say this and she was going to say that and it's like, we didn't have, we don't have that level of detail. We know the kind of general gestures. But it does, what it always makes me think of is like, you know, in gymnastics, in gymnastics where they run and, and then they go over the vault and then they have to land. <laughs> and sometimes it's just, you're just like, ah, I'm really <laughs> nervous for them. And sometimes they stick the landing and then sometimes they carry Strug back onto their butt. Um, and so, but we'll see, man. We're figuring it out. Let's, I want to ask you guys about this as well. Sam, was ill behavior meant to be a single season? Did you think beyond that? No, no, it's always meant to be a mini-series, like a self-contained thing. Okay. Yeah. Are, after spending time with the characters, though, is it something you'd like to revisit? I was asked whether I would, and I didn't want to, because I felt like I'd said everything I could say about the story. That's fair. Yeah. Um, and Tanya, you know, you're launching a series. Do you have to think about the end of it? I hope I don't have to yet. <laughs> Just because um, there's a lot, yeah, yes, the story and all that, but I, I feel like I'm carrying a, a whole community right now. Just the yeah. reaction of like, it better work. Yeah. We haven't yeah. been able to be on cable TV ever, a Latinx yeah. gay show. So like, for me, it's like, oh, please stay on, please watch it, you know? So I'm a little different. You got, you, you, I'm trying to degender my language, not you guys, but y'all, y'all have, <laughs> sorry. And it's folksy. Yeah, <laughs> but y'all have, you know, I haven't premiered, so like, we don't know if an audience will, will right. find us. But I also think it depends on the show. I don't, if yeah. your show is more situational, those shows can go on in, indefinitely. I think it depends, each show yeah. uh, knows what it wants to be and I think mm -hmm. everyone here as an audience member knows like there's shows that overstay their welcome and it's frustrating because you, you want them to stick their landing and put their hands up and get the 10 from the judges them. and walk out. Yeah, and so I think, but I do think some shows, you know, can go very many seasons, especially if, you know, as you said, they're very low impact narratively. Yeah. They, I, yeah. What I said is nothing happens. Yeah. In my low show. impact narratively. Low impact na Hold on. Yeah. Let's write that yeah. on. I, <laughs> can, I, can I pitch you this? Uh, the last episode of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, only yeah. this show gets away with it, is um, Rachel wakes up next to Bob Newhart. I would never do that. I, I've actually tweeted that multiple times because really? there's something about our show that it wants people want. I, will n I would sure. never, I hate that, and I would <laughs> never, ever do the it's all a dream I hate it I would never do that uh, next question over here and then Hello. yeah um, so my question I guess is about beginnings in a way so Great. nobody wants to come to one of these Q&A's and have somebody pitch their screenplay to Jonathan they really don't <laughs> so when at, when you guys were starting out you had you had a good script that you felt good about where did you go from there so you mean in our whole careers yeah <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the advice we often get on these panels is write, write, write. Yeah. So you write 20 scripts and you feel like you finally got a good one. What's next? But now it has to catch fire now, right? And there's lots of ways. So I caught fire in the theater. Mm -hmm. But now you can catch with a web series. You can yeah. catch with uh, comedy. Act. So I, I, but when you're a screenwriter, how do you catch 
fire mm-hmm. because uh, because now there's so much noise and so many people that people it just and so many talented people but they um in the seat they have to like oh okay let me see this one it caught a little fire you know so i i don't i don't know what that means to you but it feels like you have to catch fire somehow either but i think you're right like finding an outlet is a, a good one it's a good start right yeah. like for you it was theater and maybe comedy and you for develop others, your voice there right because my early stuff is nonsense and then it's like oh no this is well, make, also make make friends who are writers. Build a community for yourself. Um, yes. Alana Pena, who's a, was our writer's assistant, is now a writer on the show. She has a thing called See What Sticks that she and her friend developed, and they do it um, one night a month in um, a theater in Hollywood. And people submit stuff, and it's just stuff in process, and they read it. And Alana's 28 years old or something. She just started that a few years ago to like build a community because knowing other writers is is very important and it's I think there's a a miss people think you need to know senior people and you don't you need to build this way that's yeah yeah. I don't know anybody and and I but I know some you do now I know I I know y'all the gendering um I uh I know I like so I just moved here basically it seems like a long time ago five years is not that long I still don't know where like like the um, Hermosa Beach and stuff is like I don't know you know you're fine like I'm fine <laughs> Manhattan me um, but um, I I met someone who was in a writers group and every time I was like I need an assistant or I need um, uh, yeah, yeah, like people she she reached into her writers group and now I've staffed two or three people from a writers group That's you right. know so like yeah. that I think it, it works yeah, yeah. like community um, all right I want to make sure we get to these last three questions stand up I'll hold this. Um, yes, for Sam. So when I see your work, I think to myself, man, I'm never going to be that funny or good. And uh, I was wondering, who gives you that feeling nowadays? And like what shows you watch now and you go, man, they're so great. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i sorry, self-editing due to recent events, people oh, yeah. that I can't talk sure. about. <laughs> you know how it is. Um, I'm a big fan of Silicon Valley. I love that show. Um, yeah, I uh, I love um, Lena Dunham stuff. Um, I'm really I'm I'm really excited by the new wave of, of of female-led comedy because to me it's there's just so much happening across the board in Britain, especially. There's great stuff happening with Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Fleabag, yeah, and <laughs> um, Julia Davis is a big hero of mine. I'm ha- happy to say I'm, I'm sort of a friend of hers. So I'm very Excited to see her new show, which is currently shooting as well. Uh, who is the actress in Ill Behavior, uh, the sort of third friend in that group? She was so good. Oh, I had Jess- never seen her before. Well, Lizzie Kaplan, you know. Yeah, the other. Jessica Regan. Yes. Yeah. Um, she, she's fantastic. She's someone who was in one episode of Peep Show as a background artist. <laughs> we just sort of kept in touch, and she came to a read-through. We needed someone to read in, mm-hmm. and she was so good that she got the part. <laughs> That's great. Nice. She's terrific. Uh, all right, last couple questions here. Hi, I'm Chrissy, um, and I so I wrote this pilot, and it's like a dramedy pilot, um, and I've written a few drafts of it, and I guess uh, my question is, um, you guys talked a lot about how it's really helpful to have like you know funny smart people yelling things at you during the rewrites, and so I just my question is um, when you're going at it solo in the world, like how do you how do you how do you do those rewrites? Like what's your what's your pre process for for that? Yeah, when you don't have a room, how do you start to attack a rewrite? Um, well, you know, for me personally, because I have moved from being in a group to being on my own again, um, 
as a writer, I feel like I create my own room by having directors that I trust with the movies that I'm writing or producers that I trust, so I kind of get feedback as soon as possible. And then I just listen to the voices who live in my head, and they provide usually a good a chorus. But yeah, I, I tend to get feedback as soon as possible from people I trust. It just helps me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, having and that peer hear group. It. Um, to hear it, um, because it, what we do is meant to be heard and seen. So, like, to hear it is very like if I only have 36 pages or something, I need to hear it. Um, I'll get pizza and beer. Can you guys come over and? So, like, I, I need to hear it too, and have some like pe- stakeholders in there. You know, people that always give me feedback. Um, that's a, a, a really good way to, because you you probably know the way, right? That it should go, but sometimes right. you just need to like see it embodied a little bit. If it comes from outside camp, sometimes that's more helpful or more believable. Um, Okay, last question. Uh, What's up? Um, So uh, I know like staffing season's around the corner and it's not necessarily like in the traditional sense anymore, but it is like Mm -hmm. the more network one is around the corner. Uh, In those meetings, like what are you looking for uh, in those people? Like what are the qualities? Like what are some things that you want to see from like a newer writer? Like this is going to be like my first rounding going into them and I'm, yeah. I'm hella that's nervous. A <laughs> and like, that's, a, that's a great question because you know if they've read your script and they like it then you've you know you've cleared that bar and you've gotten the meeting. Um, I would say like if there's a way to make it not all about you and sort of talk about what you love about the show, what excites you about it, you know what what thing you, you're doing that you think is cool, look up what the showrunner has done, ask some questions about that and sort of not you know it's not really so much a referendum on like you don't really need to tell them like you know when I was five I saw my first bubble you know like they're they're kind of there to see what kind of a community member you'll be um, but also I would say like make sure that they come away knowing sort of what you care about as a person um, I, this is true even if I interview assistants like tell me something about your background your life your belief system um, with our show was very specific because we were starting with Rachel being in the show and um, I, if anybody came to the interview and they hadn't seen her work and weren't a fan of hers, I didn't consider them because I felt like if you're coming to to interview to be on the show and you haven't looked up Rachel Bloom and watched 10 of her videos, then that doesn't make any sense. So like educate yourself about who they are and then don't be afraid to like show what, what, because they're a room you are putting, you are placing tiles in a mosaic, you know, and so you want to say, this is, this is a cool thing about me. In any job interview, writing, staffing, anything, just like, here's a cool thing that I have to contribute, and I know you're on this journey. So like, you know, somebody who interviewed for us who, she felt like she had been a crazy ex-girlfriend and she had a couple of really hilarious stories from her life about how she had romantically stalked someone. And that was really great for us to know because it was like, oh, this is somebody that she really, this is something she really connects to. And one of our writers, um, when he interviewed, he said, I see this show as being about the happiness gap in people's life. And that was not only a really smart thing to say, uh, about the show, like something we talk about a lot and that Rachel brings up frequently, but it also showed us that he was perceptive about the show itself, that he had you know, read the pilot, seen the pilot, whatever it is, and had something specific he wanted to contribute. Yeah, I think specificity is important, and I think you, you let off by saying, like, what are the things you like about this show? Yeah. Other than that, like, just positive energy, right? 
Oh, uh, don't complain a uh, ton. Yeah. Don't complain a ton about others, right? Yeah. yeah. Other rooms you've been yeah. on, For sure. your other bosses. You can yeah. do that later over lunch, yeah. 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 I think the best advice is, I think this was in the very first panel that came up, Jane Espen said, wear pants. It's, <laughs> it's the pants wearing meeting. Uh, they need to know you're not just a weirdo writer in your underwear. Uh, let's talk about, uh, just to wrap up, what you are watching on television these days, what's getting you excited or inspired. What are you talking about with your room, your loved ones, anyone? I'm going through my, because for, uh, sometimes when I'm really in the process, I can't watch TV, mm -hmm. only like Real Housewives and stuff like that, because I just need to, you know. Yeah. Um, but right now I'm going through Smell, so good, uh, and uh, Better Things, mm -hmm. and my favorite thing is Fleabag, and I can't wait till, I don't know why I just went like this to you. Like, he's, British, he's British, he's British. He's British, so I'm obsessed with Phoebe and anything she does. Oh. Um, they're doing uh, Killing Eve yeah. right now, so I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm watching that as it goes, too. So those are the things. Great. Sam? I'm all about wild, wild country. Yeah. You know, sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you yeah. know, I don't know if I'm Team Sheila, but you know, I'm enjoying her <laughs> testimony. That's my show at the, at the present time. Yeah. I, mean, I um, just finished watching Broad Seasons, uh, Season 4, mm -hmm. and it's, it's just so good and it's such a distillation of like what they do that is so specific and I just love how their worldview and how specific and bizarre it is and it's just such a great depiction of a friendship but done in a really um, specific way and they've, they've really developed their aesthetic a lot and their voice a lot and I just feel like it's one of those beautiful things where a season is sort of come together and then I'm obsessed with Sharon Horgan and right. anything she does says wears has eats <laughs> her hair all of it uh, please give a round of applause to all of our panelists give yourselves a round of applause thank you for being here thank you guys <laughs>